2 Timothy chapter 2. And while you're doing that, let me open us up in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for who you are in our lives and all that you do and all that you are going to do this evening. I just ask, God, that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would fall afresh on each and every one of us, and especially me. God, I just pray that you would fill us all to overflowing. God, help us to allow you to shine a light within the darkness of our hearts and the bowels of who we are, God, and just cleanse us throughout this word that you have given for us to hear. God, may it just not go out as just a word, but let it go out with effect and with fire and application in each and every person's life, that they would leave out of here with one nugget of truth and that they would turn from their wicked ways and seek after you because you died on the cross to not leave us the same, but to be transformed. So God, I pray that there would be a transforming in, in everybody's lives here tonight, growing more and more in that sanctification, closer to you and being made more in your image. So God, I just ask that you would be in the midst in that... Uh, my lips would be your lips, and everything that I say and express would be from you. So, God, may you just be given honor and glory that is due to who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, that's 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to cover all 26 verses. Let's see how fast I can speak. There's only one other person who could speak fast, and that's Pastor Tyler. But I've been watching you, Tyler. <laughs> Before we get into this word, um, the title of it is Staying Strong. Last week in chapter 1, Pastor Rob, his title was Stay True. But this week it's Stay Strong. And if you guys don't know, uh, I was in, served in the Navy for over 24 years. And, and I remember back in 1995, I was 18 years old. I was, getting, I was stationed in San Diego for three years on my ship, and they sent us on our uh, six-month deployment, Westpac, as they call it, our Western Pacific tour. And uh, I was down in the engine room working six hours on and six hours off. That's 12 hours a day, not including drills that we would do throughout the day. It was a workhorse schedule that they would give us on, very sleep-depriving, which is why the training that we get at boot camp teaches us how to be sleep-deprived to, to handle that. So I'm in the middle of the ocean. I'm 18 years old. We leave in October. We're returning back in like late April. And... And during that time is going to be uh, Halloween. This was before I was a believer, so I literally celebrated Halloween. But it was more of a family event. So there was that. There was my birthday in November. Then there was Thanksgiving. And then there was Christmas. And then it was New Year's. And then it was Easter. I was going to be gone from my family. It's the first time away from my family. And I'm 19 years old. I'm a young man who is very immature. So here we are in the middle of the ocean, the Pacific Ocean, heading out to Kuwait into the Middle East. And... I'm so exhausted. I'm so tired of being on the ship. There's like no room. There's no personal space. There's men everywhere. They're all older than me, and they're all grumpy and crude. And I was just like exhausted. I was like, man, when are we going to hit land so I can go? We were like out in the water for like two months straight. It was, it was just daunting. And back then, we didn't have cell phones and email, so there was a pay phone, and you had to get a calling card if you remember those. And I had a five-minute calling card. It was Thanksgiving. We were hours ahead, so I had to wait till it was like late at night before I could call my family to see if they were all at my grandparents' house, which is where I knew everybody was in me. So I remember calling, and I just hear like joy on the background, all the kids and aunts and uncles and somebody, hello, really loud. It was, I don't even know who it was. I just said, hey, this is Jesse. I'm calling to say hi. They're like, oh, hold on. They put me on speaker, and everybody's like, you know, saying, oh, hi, Jesse, really loud. I'm right? just going crazy. I'm like, hey, I just wanted to call. I only have a few minutes. I want to say I love you guys. This, you wish I was there. And they're like, hey. And all I just kept hearing was this word of encouragement from them was, we are so proud of you. 
we are so grateful for what you do for us. And it really just melted my heart because I was like, I need this right now. I wish I was home, but I know my duty here is important. So I'm staying this course, but it lifted me up so I can carry on until the next time. And the next time was mail call when all the letters come in from, uh, from all over the place. And same thing, I got letters from family and friends saying the same thing. And I'm like, man, I needed this letter. This letter is going to keep me going. I'm up. I'm up. I'm lifting my head up, and I'm going forward. So this, this letter right here in 2 Timothy is exactly what is going on. It is a very similar thing, except it's sort of flipped because of Paul, where he's at, and where Timothy is. And a little background to this letter as we, before we jump into it. 2 Timothy is a letter from Paul the Apostle to his young protege, Pastor Timothy. And Paul, he's in Rome. He's in prison for the second time in Rome. First time he was there, which was when he wrote 1 Timothy, he was in basically house arrest. He had a lot of freedoms. But then he's, he's set free, and he, he, he leaves, and it's supposed that he went to Spain, and then he came back into Rome. As soon as he got to Rome, he was thrown back into prison. But this time he was sent into the dungeon. He was shackled to the walls like, he, like never before because he was always had these freedoms when he was locked up and beat and, and, and wherever he was imprisoned. So he was in solitary confinement, which is where he was chained up. And Paul knows that he's about to die soon. And history records that he did die soon after he wrote this final letter of 2 Timothy. And you, you just have to imagine Paul is at the very end of his life and he knows the time has come. I'm done. So the heart behind this letter is just that. This is my final letter, Timothy. And there's a lot of emotion and there's a lot of drive that's coming from it. And he's writing to him to encourage Timothy. And Timothy, he's in Ephesus. And he's there serving and leading the church by helping to do whatever is needed to grow the believers there. He, he took the place of what Paul did when Paul was there for over three years. And now it's, it's Timothy's turn to run that church. And that's what this letter is. It is a pastoral epistle or pastoral letter to encourage him on what he is to do. And in this final letter, it has a lot of quick reminders and exhortations or, or encouragements for him. And Paul, he didn't spend a lot of time developing just one particular thought. But instead, Paul gives a rapid-fire approach with many concepts and ideas of what he is supposed to do. That's because time is short. He had to write four chapters of quickness, of final thoughts, of how to lead the church, how to keep it going. Paul didn't want Timothy to be weary and weak, just like I know I went through when I was serving in the military. So he carefully explained what a pastor is and what a pastor does in order to stay strong in the ministry of leading the church. Of course, the things that we're about to walk through, um, I'm going to walk through seven principles or seven pastoral characters of a strong Christian leader. And there's going to be some mixed metaphors as Paul, again, rapid fires these things. So they should be on the screen, this outline of one through seven of what we're going to walk through. And these same principles apply to all Christians, not just pastors and leaders. Because realistically, all of you are leaders in your own right because of who Christ is in you. It's just, do we take up that mantle of leadership because we're leaders in our home, we're leaders at work, we're leaders at school, we're also leaders in the church. Some rise to higher position with it, but we're all called to lead because our kids and our grandkids are watching. That's how much they see us as leaders. So the outline for tonight, number one, these, again, these seven characteristics. Number one is going to be, we're going to talk about being a steward. Two, a soldier. And there's going to be two parts to a soldier in verse 3 and 4, and then again in 8 through 13. Then we're going to talk about being an athlete. 
and a farmer and a workman or a worker, a vessel, and then lastly, being a servant. You guys with me? All right. Let's pick up in verse 1 through 2, talking about the steward. He says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Let's pause. Be strong, is what he says. This was an important encouragement. Paul knew that Timothy would need strength and endurance to fulfill the calling that God had given him. And Timothy was possibly, possibly one of two things, either naturally timid and easily discouraged, or he was a man of normal courage who had great responsibilities, and he needed to be encouraged often to be strong. I think it's the second thing. In order for you to be ordained as a pastor, you already have to be, have some strength like no other. You have to be seen by other men, and you have to be had hands laid on you. So I think it's a second. He was just a man who was leading and had a lot of responsibilities. He just needed to be encouraged. Often he gets a bad rap that, oh, timid Timothy's. I don't think it's that. So I think we all have that natural ability to be a little bit timid, a little bit fearful, a little bit worried about where we're going or what we're doing or what God is calling us to do. But there's always got to be somebody who's a mentor who just keeps pushing that envelope of keep going. And that's what we see here. He also says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, right? Paul told Timothy a specific way to be strong. That is, to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And this strength in grace, it's essential for him to not only have a strong Christian life, but also to be a strong Christian leader. And here's what grace is, if if you don't know. There's this cool acronym called God's Riches at Christ's Expense, right? And here's what that really means. Here's here's a definition. It's unmerited favor from God given to the believer, enabling him or her to be or to do whatever is required in keeping with the calling or directives of the Lord. See, grace is unearned favor. You can't work for it. You can't buy it. It is a gift from God. Favor is, is an individual thing. This is cool. It is requested of God and it's given by God if he decides to. Favor of grace, it is expansive. And here's what I mean. If you came to me and said, I have a favor to ask of you, you fill in the blank, X, Y, Z. I need money. I need gas. I need food. I need clothing. And I give it to you. You've just received grace of favor. I didn't expect you to pay for it. I didn't expect you to work for it. You just asked, and I freely gave. Does that make sense? That's what grace is. It's unmerited favor. God gives us favors. We ask him, God, I have a favor for you. How do we do that? We pray. And he gives us. And some of those things of favor are strength, ability, boldness, courage, health, a spouse, kids, grandkids, etc., etc. Every favor comes from God. The breath in our lungs. God, thank you for your grace of the breath that I have today. That's why we should wake up every day with thanksgiving. Pray for the meal that we do have. It's important. See, Paul knew what it was like to receive the strength of God's grace. He explained it in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 through 10. If you're note-taking, just make reference of it because I didn't give him these, these slides of these verses because I want you to dive into your Bibles. I don't want you cheating on the board. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 through 10. Bible students, here it is. My Here's, here's a little bit of what happened. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul the Apostle, 
He was known as a Pharisee. He was a religious leader of the Jewish faith. And now he's a Christian. And God had to keep him humble because of his knowledge of what he knew about the scrolls and the scriptures. And in that process, God allowed an unclean spirit, a demon, to buffet him, as it says, or I like to say buffet, chomp on him and keep chewing on him. And, he, and Paul calls it the thorn in his flesh. Some of us like to say the thorn in the flesh is my wife, it's my husband, it's my job, it's my X, Y, and Z. That's not true. That's not what he's saying. He said, and I prayed three times for God to take this thing from me. And you know what God said? He didn't say yes. He didn't say no. Here's what he said. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength, here's the word strength, is made perfect in your weakness. Man, talk about favor. And you know what happened? God allowed that demon to continue to continue because he needed to keep him humble. And in the, in the weakness of that situation, he just had to keep seeking the Lord for that grace of favor of strength. And Paul was able from that to encourage Timothy from his own experience of that situation. And this strength can only come from God's grace. The secret of Paul's great ministry was the grace of God. And then he goes on to say, the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses. Timothy heard many Bible studies from Paul. He was with him on missionary journeys. So he saw Paul witness to people. He saw churches get planted. He had one-on-one discipleship with him. And at this point in time, by the time that this letter was written, Paul and Timothy had been friends for 15 years. That's a lot of fellowship. That's a lot of connection. That's a lot of intimacy. That's a lot of mentoring. So I think Paul is pretty well equipped up to this point for what he's got to do. Again, 2 Timothy is all about reminding him of the things that he told him in 1 Timothy, if you want to go back and read that. And it may be that Paul reminded Timothy of a special message that he presented at Timothy's ordination where they laid hands on him. And maybe he said something specifically about these things that I committed to you as I lay my hands on you in the front of everybody and the Lord. Those are the things I'm committing to you. Then Paul gave him sound doctrine of biblical truths, which he was to teach. And now he tells him to commit those truths to faithful men in the same way that they were committed to him. Because Paul was faithful. Timothy was faithful. Now he's saying, Timothy, you need to go find your own men around you that are faithful. And God gave ministry leadership to Timothy, not for him just to keep for himself, but for him to pass on to others. It's an essential part of his work as a pastor needed to do to pour into others as God had poured into him. One may say that everything that a pastor does in his ministry, he should train others to do. There are no duties of a pastor so holy or so secret that he should keep them all to himself. He should always seek to spread ministry to others and to train others to do the work of the ministry. The job of training leaders is part of every pastor's job description. He should not only train leaders when the need for a leader is obvious, nor should he only train leaders for the needs of his congregation alone. He should train leaders for the kingdom of God in general. Whether they are used in ministry at the particular congregation or at Calvary Vista or not at other churches. You know, this verse right here, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, is a life verse for me. As a, as a ministry leader. It, it has been that for years. 
And one of the things that I've been blessed to do over the past five years of being full-time staff here after retiring from the Navy and quitting my job and coming here is I've been given that opportunity to actually minister to so many men and women in the church that I've had so many ministries that were in my hand that I was exhausted. I was worn out. But because I poured into so many people within this church that I've been able to step back and watch them rise up and them take the ministry and lead. It's been phenomenal. And now I've become a coach of coaches and a leader of leaders. And I look at this verse, I'm like, Lord, you gave this verse to me years ago. In fact, men's retreat, when we used to go up to the mountain in Big Bear or Arrowhead, men's retreat 2014, the theme was commit. And that was when the Lord put it on my heart, commit these things to others also. And I said, Lord, I have nothing to commit. And he said, good, it's because you need to be committed to be filled first before you can give out. And here I am nine years later, and that has happened. It's phenomenal what God can do. And it's important to do that. We have skills workshops. We have about 30 leaders now. Discount me, that's 29 who are actually doing the work. I've been facilitated a skills workshop in over two years because there are people in the church who are doing the work of the ministry. Go in peace retreats. I don't go to all of them anymore because I have eight other men, and I have like four or five women. I don't go to women's retreats, but there's, I was a part of training the women in their side. It's just been phenomenal. And if you don't know what go in peace or skills are, go look it up on our events page. It's phenomenal. I, require, I re- recommend you all go if you haven't. It's amazing. And he says here in this verse, right, to faithful men. When Timothy looked for those whom he could pour into, he was to look for the quality of faithfulness. He didn't need to find smart men, strong men, perfect men, good-looking men. Paul told him to look for faithful men. Because God looks at the heart, not the stature. And through the history of Christianity, some have held to the wrong idea of ordaining someone or one person only to train up to succeed him, and so on down the line. However, this verse reveals the real succession of pastoral leadership and passing on. The succession of faithful men, that's plural, who take the teachings of the apostles and pass them on. It's not, I train one person, so when I step out, you take my spot. That's not how it works. It's, I minister to as many people who are faithful and they're willing to do this work, so when I step back, any of them can do my job. And that is the best thing. When I used to work at, uh, when I used to work where I worked, I don't like to say the company name because you don't deserve the advertisement. So um, <laughs> I was an operations manager for a water filtration company. You can go through the phone book on that. Um, and while I was there, I always raised up every single one of my people. I would bring them to my desk and I would show them what I'm doing on my computer. The admin team over there hated when I did that. Why are you showing them the secrets? I'm like, I got to take vacation too. These people got to know what to do. And that was the problem because the office wouldn't take vacation because they thought they were going to lose their jobs if they let somebody else. I said, I don't care about my job. I care about this business flowing the way that it should. And I take that same thought into ministry. I'm going to raise up whoever I need to so that they can do my role when I'm gone. Or whatever, whatever the Lord wants to do and send them out to another church, that church is going to be blessed. And that's one of the things that we see here going on. So this job training or this job of training leaders was so important that it could not be restricted to just Timothy alone. Those whom he had trained must also be given the job to teach others also. It's repetition of this thing. And others that he invested in also needed to invest into others, and he needed to encourage them to do that work. Because sometimes they don't know what to do, and they come back, and he's like, here's what I did. Here, try this with them. And they go and they do it, and it works. And that's the way the ministry should be spreading. 
the ability to study, understand, and teach the Word of God, again, it is, it is a gift of God's grace to be able to do that. And I think we as a church should ask, Lord, show me how to teach others. I don't know who to teach. I don't know who is faithful. What does that look like? And he will give you that spiritual sense on who. He will give you a sniper scope and be like, this one. I could tell you a cool story about a home group leader of mine who was only one year in the Lord, and he became my co-facilitator, co-leader. And beyond all things in my mind, I was like, this guy is not fit, Lord. This guy is just new in the Lord. Why would he be my co-leader or co-facilitator in my home group? I don't even think he knows the Bible. And in and, and reality, I didn't, even read more, I didn't even have half of the Bible read in my own mind when the Lord called me to open up a home group. And he still used that. So he reminded me. So when I read, brought this guy in, I'm like, all right, let's do this. That guy shined like a star. He's one of our you know, leaders here at the church now. It's amazing what God can do. And maybe God's calling some of you to be like teaching and facilitating Bible studies, men's groups, women's groups, home groups. You can do it if you trust him. All right. Number two, the soldier. Verses three and four. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Let's pause. Paul often used military illustrations in his letters. This is not surprising since he lived in a military state and was in prison himself with soldiers all around him. He says, you, therefore you must. And that word you must is not a suggestion. It's a command. He tells them, you must do this. And to do what? Endure hardship as a good soldier. Timothy must take the attitude of a soldier who expects to endure hardship for the cause of the gospel being shared. Because no real soldier, or at least no real good soldier, as the scripture says, ever gave up simply because some hardship came to them. In the same way, if Timothy is not willing to endure hardship, he will never accomplish much for Christ. He won't accomplish much for Jesus. If he doesn't endure, then he will give up as soon as something hard is required of him, and he won't be able to fulfill the calling that Jesus has on his life. And Paul doesn't encourage Timothy to be a common or ordinary soldier, no, but to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And not all soldiers or sailors are good There are many who are only soldiers and nothing more. They aren't willing to do anything above and beyond their basic duties, and they never grow to become more. There's employees at your work that are like that. Maybe you're like that. I'm only going to do what I get paid to do, whatever my job description is. No, you go above and beyond. You take manuals home and you study. So when you come to work, you kick butt and you do it for Christ's sake, not your paycheck. It's in the increase that God, your employer will be like, this is an employee who goes above and beyond. I'm going to give that person a pay raise. Grace. (laughs) And then you say, thank you, Lord, because you gave that to me. I did. I went above and beyond. That's a requirement. And when temptation comes their way in this hardship, they are quick to fall and they can become cowards. They can become idle, useless, and worthless. Not for the cause of Christ. I had a guy who uh, I went to boot camp with. 
He was a knucklehead. This guy was from Chicago. The reason why I say that is because he just bragged about Chicago. I hope I get orders over here in Chicago because boot camp for the Navy is in Illinois. It's like 45 minutes. It's Great Lakes. We call it Great Mistakes. Illinois, it's near Chicago. And uh, anyways, after boot camp, I was like, yes, I don't have to see that dude again. So I go to fireman engineering school. He goes to deck seaman school. We both get orders, and we're both stationed in San Diego on the same ship. Oh, no. But he's not in my duty station. He's up in a different department on deck side, and I'm down at the bottom in the engineering department. This dude found out about TJ, and he would go to TJ every night. This guy got into the party scene, but he found drugs. And one night, we were all coming back to the ship, me and a bunch of my engineering buddies, and here he comes stumbling in like a knucklehead. And uh, the master arms, which is the ship police, basically, they said, everybody at the master arms office are doing random drug testing. Sounds good. So we do our drug testing. Next day, he pops. Six months, he's in the brig on the ship, and they exit him out of the Navy. Not every soldier is fit for the work of the ministry. I've seen it firsthand in the Navy. I've seen it at my workplace. I've seen it in ministry. You guys have probably heard about pastors who have fallen in the ministry. Same thing. Very similar. But a good soldier is brave and has a zeal to serve Jesus. They accomplish their duty with honor, courage, and commitment, with a full heart being filled with the Holy Spirit. Then he goes on to say about no one engaged in warfare entangles himself, right? Timothy must take the attitude of a soldier who willingly separates himself from the things of civilian life. And that was one thing my friend could not do. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 24, he says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Many aren't willing to die themselves or pick up their cross. They'll follow him, but only so far. And a soldier has to give up many things. Some of them are bad things, like pride, independence, self-will, and maybe even some addictions that they are willing to go into. But some of them are good things, like their home, their family, their friends, luxuries, good food. There isn't always good food in the military. Nevertheless, if a soldier is not willing to give up things that entangle him, he is not a soldier at all because they're clung to the old life. He must give up anything that gets in the way of being a good soldier and serving his commanding officer. If Timothy did not endure hardship, and if he did not put away the things that entangled him in the affairs of this life, he would not be pleasing to his CO or his commanding officer. And who is his CO? It's Jesus Christ, the commander of the Lord's army. In Joshua chapter 5, Jesus appeared to Joshua as commander of the Lord's army. And here's what it says in Joshua, no takers, Joshua chapter 5, verse 13 through 15. Let me read it. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And so he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua, he did so. See, Jesus is the commanding officer, and Timothy owed total obedience to him. 
it is likely that Paul, again, was chained inside of a cell near soldiers. While he was having this written, that's what was going on. That was his heart. And he saw how these soldiers acted and how they obeyed their commanding officers. And Paul knew that this is how a Christian must act towards their Lord, their commanding officer. And if non-believers, non-believing soldiers could follow order so well, then Christians should be able to do it even more so. But I don't think that's always the case because of the entanglements. You guys with me? All right. Number three, the athlete. Verse five. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. If anyone competes in athletics, right? Paul often drew upon the world of athletics for illustrations of the Christian life. And he mentions track and field in 1 Corinthians 9. He mentions boxing in 1 Corinthians 9. He mentions wrestling in Ephesians 6. And Paul, he often had to run. He had to run for his life. See, we see that Paul, he was a fan of the Los Angeles Dodgers because he dodged all these guys. He dodged the enemy. And by the way, Los Angeles means city of angels, where there's also the, the angels. And you could tell Paul's a Christian because of that, because he's not a Catholic from the San Diego Padres. I'm just kidding, sort of. He is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The point is clear. An athlete can't make up the rules as they please. They must compete according to the rules if they want to receive the crown. It is possible to fall into the mistake of thinking that we can make up our own rules for our Christian life. For some people, they think they can have a special arrangement with God, and and it sort of goes like this. You know, I know this sin in me. I know that this thing that I do, it's sinful, but God understands, so I'll just keep on doing what I'm doing in sin because his grace has covered me. In fact, in in Romans, Paul actually says, do you just continue going on because continue going on in sin because grace abounds? He says, certainly not, exclamation point. I almost feel like if we had full text of what he's saying, he's yelling, certainly not. You don't sin and you know that you're willfully sinning because God's going to cover your grace. Are you, are you testing God? Are you, are, what are you doing? And I think he's really challenging these guys. This goes against the attitude of an athlete who must compete according to the rules because they make up their own rules. The Greeks and the Romans were enthusiastic about sports, and the Olympic Games were important events to them. And Paul admonishes Timothy, you must obey the rules. Don't do what others are doing. And the person who strives as an athlete to win a game and get a crown, they must be careful to obey all the rules of that game. If an athlete was found defective in any matter, they were disqualified from competing. Or if after they had competed and won and were found to have broken some rule, then they lost their crown. They lost their medal. They lost their ring. They lost their trophy. And there are many American athletes that have lost their, met, their Olympic medals because they participate, participated in a way that broke rules through enhancement drugs. They tried to beat the system. And they originally beat the system because the new drugs that they kept creating were beating the testing systems. Until somebody reported, the guy who actually made the drugs actually turned everybody in. 
He went to prison. There's a story about it. It's a true story. Marianne Jones, she was one of them, who lost all of her medals from the Olympics because of his drugs. Years later, and there was many more. All right, number seven, the farmer. The hardworking farmer, or number four, sorry, not number seven. Number four, the hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. He tells Timothy to have the attitude of a farmer. And Paul emphasized the fact that farmers are hardworking. In the same way, all who serve the Lord should be hardworking. And unlike the soldier and the athlete, there is nothing glamorous about the work that a farmer does. It's often tedious, boring, and unexciting, and filthy. God has no place, I would say, for lazy ministry leaders. If they will not work hard, they should consider maybe stepping down from ministry if they're not ready for the hard work. If they will only work hard, if they are in the limelight, then I pray that God would change their heart to not be about themselves. Me personally, I don't like limelight. I don't like to Instagram, Facebook, the things that I do, even if it's for the Lord. There's just something for me, a personal conviction that I don't like. I don't like to teach from the main pulpit. I like small groups. I'm the marriage and family pastor here. I have two couches in my office for a reason. We sit in small groups and we talk about deep heart things. I like being in skills workshops because there's only 10 of us and we talk about deep heart things. Go in peace retreats, same thing. Circle groups, I love the circle groups. That's my jam. I love being in with small groups. I like having conversation. It's phenomenal. But I don't like the limelight, and I think some do. And they should check their heart and figure out why do they like the limelight more than being with people and counseling or being in small groups and getting to know people. I like to get to know people, just who it is, how, I, how it is for me. And Paul, he knew the value of hard work. He could say, comparing himself with the other apostles, I labored more abundantly than they all. He says that in 1 Corinthians 15.10. I don't think that's a prideful statement from him. He was stating the facts. Peter, James, and John, they all hung out in Israel, Jerusalem, and all those regions. Paul said, I'm taking this to the Gentiles. The Jews might be a little bit of work, not as hard because they kind of know What's going on? They've been waiting for the Messiah. It's easier to convince. But the Gentiles who have all these other gods, he's got to break into new territory and new ground. And he went all over the place. He went from regions to countries. And he evangelized and he he planted churches. Amazing. Some people expect something for nothing. But wise people know that you often get out of things according to the measure you put into them. If you are putting forth little effort in your Christian walk, or for Timothy, if he's only putting a little bit of effort, he should expect little results. Now, we say in the skills workshops and go and peace retreats that while you're here in attendance for this thing, what you put into it is what we all will get out of it. If you put nothing into it and you never voice your heart, then we walk away a little bit weaker because you didn't share what was on your heart. And we try to make room for that because there's a place for it. And he says, you must be the first to partake of the crops as a farmer. When Timothy had spiritual food to give to the congregation, he first must eat of it. If he wasn't being fed from the word of God, he shouldn't be feeding others. 
an effective leader or teacher will get more out of the message than the audience actually does. I think I spent two weeks minister, meditating and, and walking through this whole thing before I pinned this down starting yesterday. I got way more. I, literally, I was telling my wife, I got 85 pages of notes, and I have like 40 minutes. I got it down to half. <laughs> but it's true. I can't give if I haven't eaten of God's word, the bread of life. It's important. Verse 7 says, Consider what I say. Paul has just explained about being a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer, and each of these occupations need great perseverance in order to succeed. And the soldier who stops fighting before the battle is finished will never see victory. The athlete who stops running will never get to the end of the race and win. The farmer who stops working before the harvest is complete will never see the fruit of their crops. Can't quit. Stay strong. Keep going. Let's go to verse 8 regarding the soldier part 2. He kind of repeats this soldiering idea. So verse 8 through 13, he says, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffered trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. In the beginning, he says, remember. Remember Jesus Christ. Paul did not give this warning because it was something Timothy might easily forget. No, he said it because Timothy needed to be reminded to keep this in the forefront of his mind as he preached and he teached. And that term, remember Jesus Christ, this is a phrase that should be better translated like a war cry from a soldier. For instance, December 7th, 1941, a day that will forever live in infamy. 1939, World War II already started in Europe and in Asia. America didn't want any part of it. So the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and they woke up the sleeping giant and woe is all of them. But all those soldiers that were on the ground fighting, going island hopping on the Pacific, island hopping, they were weary. But guess what stirred them up? Remember Pearl Harbor, what they did to us, and it would lift them up, and they would press on and fight. September 11, 2011, remember the Twin Towers, never forgotten. The soldiers that we sent to Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, they were weary, Sure. And guess what they had to keep reminding themselves? Remember the Twin Towers. Remember all those civilians, all the kids who have no parents because of what happened. Let's get up and fight. And it would just stir up the adrenaline, and they would press on. Same thing here. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember. Keep going, Timothy. Keep going. For Jesus died, but he also rose again, proving that suffering leads to glory And that seeming defeat on the cross wasn't defeat at all. It actually led to victory. It gave us salvation. It gave us a God that gave us hope. Unlike other religions who gods are still in the ground, really not gods at all. Paul says, according to my gospel in those verses, this did not mean that he was taking the gospel from the Lord. For Paul, 
This meant that the gospel belonged to him in the sense that he preached it and he believed it. It was a heartfelt personal connection and relationship that he had with the gospel message that led him to say this. It was not only his gospel, it's also the gospel of each individual Christian who believes. The question for us is, is the gospel yours? I know it's mine, and hopefully it's yours too, because it is personal to me. Let me tell you about my Jesus. You know that song? That is personal. But he's really our Jesus. Let me tell you about my gospel, the good news. Let me tell you about my Jesus. And he goes on to say in verse 9, For which I suffer. This gospel did not bring Paul a life of glamour and ease. It brought him a life of adventure and challenge and a life marked with suffering. Lots of suffering. And then he also goes on to say to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. See, Paul's wrists were shackled at the very moment he was writing this, as I kept saying, and he understood that they could chain him up, but they could never chain the word of God. How do we know? Because he was able to still write a letter and get it out of the cell which not only got to Timothy, but it got to all the church and to us to this day. It hasn't been changed. Chained. The Bible has been attacked more than anybody, any other book throughout history. It has been burned, banned, mocked, twisted, and ignored. But the word of God still stands forever. How do we know? Because we're doing it now. <laughs> In the Old Testament, in Isaiah 40, verse 8, note takers. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. It was prophetic in the Old Testament that it will stand forever, and it's not going to go anywhere. It's not disappearing. The word of God is not chained. No government, no religious authorities, no skeptics, scientists, philosophers, nor book burners have ever been able to stop the work of the word of God. They may have hindered it, but it continues to press on. Yet if there is any sense in which the word is bound, it is bound when it's supposed friends Abandon it, pastors, teachers. When pulpits sound more like self-help books than those who proclaim God's word, when scripture is used sparingly like an ingredient in a meal instead of being the core of it, false pastors and leaders put a chain on the Bible. They prevent it from going out. And there are churches around here that do that now. Went on vacation a couple weeks ago or last month, and we went to a church locally, and they gave us a piece of note that had some words and some blanks, Never once did they say, please open your Bibles, like I did when we first got here. This Bible needs to be open. It needs to be marked up on. We need to be studying it. We need to be encouraging people to study it, not silencing it. And then he goes on to say towards the end right here, this is a faithful saying. We know what it is like to have a worship, well, we know what it's like to have a worship song on our mind, one that expresses our heart, right? Well, here Paul quotes an early Christian hymn, known among the Christians of his day. And that's why they say, for this is a faithful saying. He's repeating something that's been shared generation to generation in oral style. And the song begins with the promise of resurrection to those who have died with Jesus. And the Bible speaks of dying with Jesus in at least two ways. One through water baptism, and second one is through martyrdom. But more significantly, significantly, Paul was writing this while he was awaiting his own execution by the Roman government. He was about to go down and martyrdom, not baptism. 
And that's what he was trying to express that was in this saying. And this song, it assures that the faithful believer will have an eternal reward. This principle assures us that our present difficulty or trial is worth enduring. The Bible says that we will rule and reign with Jesus. And this future destiny explains much of the difficulty described in this passage. And he goes on, if we deny him, he also will deny us. Right? Jesus said it plainly in Matthew 10, verse 33. He says, but whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And if we are faithless, well, he still remains faithful. There's a story that talks about in the Bible where Jesus told a story about a man who had two sons. The younger son said, I want my inheritance now, Dad, before you're dead. So the father gave it to him. The guy goes running off. He's known as the prodigal. Wild living. He's a lost son. He loses it all. But he doesn't come home. He goes and gets hired to a man of that land. And he ends up being with pigs, feeding them. And he's still so hungry, he's not even able to feed them. He wants to eat the food that the pigs are eating. That's how hungry he is. But then he comes to his senses and he says, you know, I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell my father that I have sinned against heaven, first and foremost, and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Take me back and hire me to be one of your servants. So that's what he does. He goes. And as soon as he goes, his father just kept looking, looking out for him. And as soon as he comes running, the father goes running out to him. And he basically bear hugs him and he kisses him. He was waiting for him to come back. And this, and this point is the same thing. He remains faithful even when we are faithless and turn and run from him to be a prodigal lost son, willing to go spend every graceful thing that he's given us. And when we're all out of our grace things that he's given us, our favor, he still welcomes us home. Amen? I think most of us understand that one very well. Number five, workmen. Halfway point, that's what my notes say, and I have like 10 minutes. <laughs> May the spirit of Tyler work within. All right, number five, workmen. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord, not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. And their message will spread like cancer. Hymenius and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who knows the name of Christ depart from iniquity. He talks about Timothy, don't strive about words that are to no profit, because all it does is hurts those who are hearing it. Don't get in useless debates over baptism, over communion, over alcohol. You should not drink. I have a liberty to drink. Don't get in useless babblings over those things, especially if there's people who are young believers around. It's not a healthy conversation because they're just going to be like, I don't know what this is. I don't think I want this. And they walk. It's not worth it. Ruin to the hearers. He tells them, to continue to be diligent. Present yourself approved to God. Because Timothy, he wasn't to worry so much about presenting other people approved to God, though there is a place for pastoral ministry of presenting people approved for God, but his first concern had to be 
to present himself approved to God. He needed to stay the course of what he was called to do in his diligence-ness of being a pastor and a leader over a church. And he needed to be a worker, right, who, does, who is not to be ashamed. It's embarrassing to do a job poorly and then have your work examined by somebody. Military, we're really good at that. Inspection day, dang it, I didn't clean, I didn't do this. It happens, even in God's house. There's an examination day where God says, I'm showing up, so what have you been doing? Oh, I've been saying that I have appointments and I really haven't had appointments. Because I know, I've been watching you. (laughs) I see everything you do. Doesn't happen. Nothing's missed. Be a good worker. Then he says, talking about rightly dividing the word of truth. This was to be a focus of Timothy's hard work. He was to work hard so he could rightly divide the word of God. That is, he had to know what is said in the word and what it did not say and how it was to be understood and how it was not to be understood and how he was supposed to share it. He had to rightly divide it. He had to make sure it was proper. Rightly dividing has these ideas of like handling a sword and cutting straight or plowing a field and making it straight for the seed to go in it or properly dissecting and arranging just as a priest would do when they would have an animal sacrifice because there was parts that had to go in certain places during the sacrifice or an allotment to each portion as if someone was distributing food at a table Everybody evenly was rightly divided. And he had to do the same thing with the word of God. He had to rightly divide the word of God and knew how to display and share it with, with his congregation. Super important. And he also says, right, but shun profane and idle babblings. This refers to anything that takes the focus off of the gospel and God's word. And these babblings are profane because they're unholy to the word of God. They're contrasting. They are idle because even though people like to hear them, they don't have lasting value, like stupid, foul jokes. Aha, that was funny. Made us all laugh, but that wasn't in alignment with God's word. shouldn't have laughed. I should have walked away. We shun profane and idle babblings. And he says that these guys, their message was spread like cancer. The message of profane and idle babblings may spread quickly and it may even be popular. They are like a cancer that spreads fast and it captures the audience that's in the group and it shouldn't be so. He goes on to talk about this, these, two guy, these two guys, Hymenius and Philetus. And Hymenius, he's mentioned twice now. He's mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. And he's a man who actually Paul says in there, I delivered him to Satan. Pretty powerful statement to make about this guy. But he must be a bad dude if he had to be talked about twice in a letter. And these guys, they were of this sort. They were idle babblers, nonsense speakers. They might have even been leaders in the church at some point, but they turned to idleness. They strayed concerning the truth. And it it appears that they may have started out correctly and strong but they drifted and they went a whole different course. They actually said that the resurrection has already passed. They were teaching 
that we were already in God's millennial kingdom age. Or that there was no resurrection to come and it had already occurred. Which is sad because that meant there was no hope. There was no hope of Jesus coming back as if it already happened. And wait, I missed it? I missed the rapture? That's what they were preaching. False. And because of that, they were overthrowing the faith of some. They were drawing people to follow their belief. This nonsense that was not doctrinal. It was bad. And then in verse 19, he talks about having this seal. And he talks about that there's two seals of the foundation of God. The first one is that the Lord knows those who are, who are his. He's actually talking about these two guys, Hymenaeus and Philetus, because they can continue to do this constructive ministry with profane and vain, vain babblings that swept through the church like cancer and it started to overthrow the faith of many. Well, the Lord knows who are his. And these guys, they're not his. And we don't always know who are his. We can't be dogmatic. Oh, that person, they don't know the Lord. They're not saved. Oh, back up. But we can know ourselves or for ourselves that we are his. If we diligently follow Jesus and teach the word from the word. Don't teach the word from a book that somebody else wrote. And I mean, there's some good Christian books out there. Don't make that be the thing. Your Bible should complement that book. Actually, that book should complement God's word because God's word is what stands true. And we need to be teaching from the word and then looking at a book. Make sure it matches and it mirrors. Then he goes on to say, Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And this is the second inscription out of those two seals that he was talking about for these guys, for the foundation of God. And it is true that God knows those who are his, and he calls those who are his to leave their sin behind. Don't keep holding on to it. If someone did not have the desire or the actions to depart from iniquity, it's fair to ask or to suggest if they really belong to Jesus or if they have allowed themselves to be deceived that their sin is okay and they can still follow Jesus. That person needs to be delivered from demonic entities in their life to remove that blinding that causes them to think that it's okay because it's not. Number six, vessel, verses 20 through 23. I can do this in one minute. No, I can't. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, or this last thing, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. Yes. Vessels of gold and silver. He goes on to talk about that there's vessels of gold and silver that are in the kitchenette, basically, in God's house. And then there's some who are wood and clay, maybe an ashtray or maybe a trash can. And these are the vessels that he's talking about. You're either one or the other. And there comes a time that he's going to look to you as the vessel to use And you may not be ready if you're an ashtray, if you're clay or you're wood. 
He says, I need you to polish yourself. You have free will to choose based upon the work that I already did for you on the cross. Do you want to be that nice silver and gold platter, that vessel that is ready to be pulled out when it's time to serve the gospel to people? Or are you shaky and you're like unpolished that I, I can't use this. I have to put you back. And he goes on to say, if anyone cleanses himself, this is an interesting statement because we know that there is no cleansing in our own will, our own way. It's only by God, by the blood of Jesus that cleanses and covers us that we are already cleansed spiritually. However, we still have the ability to go back to our old selves. And he says, you need to clean yourself up. You have your choice to make. You can either be these type of vessels or these type of vessels. I have use for you. There's purpose in your life. But what do you want to be? What do you want to do? He also says you must be sanctified and useful for that time. And that word sanctified means set apart, right? Just like that fine china. You're set apart for a specific time and a specific date when I pull you off that shelf. It may not be today. It may not be next year or five years. But there will be a day. Be ready. I'm going to use you. And be prepared for every good work when that comes. It's important for us to be ready. He also goes on to say, right, flee also youthful lust, Timothy. And youthful lust doesn't just mean it's for teenagers and young adults. If you look in the Bible, you see David, King David and King Solomon. They were older in their days, and they fell into youthful lust. He's just talking about the characteristic of youthful lust. You need to die to that because it is in everybody, no matter how old you are. But that burning desire as a youth or a young adult is more deeper than it is at an older age. But it is still there and can rage if you allow it. And he says, Timothy, you got to flee that thing. you got to be like Joseph did when he was in Potiphar's house. When Potiphar was gone, Potiphar's wife put his hand on his jacket, and he basically runs out of his clothes naked and runs out of that place. That's what he's saying to do. And by the way, Joseph was a young man who probably had every desire to burn with passion to fall into that sin. But no, he knew whose he was, so he ran. And he did the right thing. And God ended up using him and becoming number two in Egypt to reset things in order and reset the beat of his heart for his family. And he rekindled and restored and reconciled because of his faithfulness. Just because of that one moment could have ruined him. God could have said, you're an ashtray. I can't use you. Number seven, skipping up real quick. The servant. And the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, being patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. A servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome. Can't have quarrel. They must be gentle. I've had people in my counseling yell at me because I was speaking truth about a sin in their life. (laughs) My old me probably wouldn't have responded as well as I do today. I just know that Hurt people hurt people, and I'm not going to hurt them back. They're wrestling with their own sin within their life. They didn't like what I said, just like throwing a 
Brock had a pack of dogs. The one that yelps is the one that got hit. Well, that person got hit. But I'm not going to quarrel with you about a truth. It doesn't happen, and it shouldn't happen for you. You don't need to quarrel. Patience needs to come out. You must be, also be able to teach the word of God to others, you leaders. Teach. Sometimes you don't know unless you ask God. God, give me the ability of your favor to teach. Ask for his grace. He'll give it to you. Patience. Oh, that is a fruit of the Spirit. It's also called long-suffering because we suffer long in patience in working with people. And he says, Timothy, you need to do this with your congregation. Yeah, there's going to be some people that are EGRs. Extra grace required for that one. Oh, this one's a piece of work. God says, yes, you were. (laughs) Now it's your turn, you EGR, to, to deal with this EGR. It's true for some. And in the end, he talks about in escaping the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him, Satan. Those who are in opposition to God's work, whether they know it or not, they're actually bound in a demonic deception, being trapped by the enemy. And they are doing the devil's work. You actually can become tools in the enemy's hands. I consider like a spiritual puppet. He sticks his hand through our rear end or spine, and he grabs our mind, and he just uses us to cause conflict and arguments. I say this when I do marriage counseling. You're just a puppet in God's hand right now. Why are you yelling at your, at your wife? Or why are you yelling at your husband? You know you both are made in the image of God, and I don't think God would be yelling at himself. Why are you doing that? Because you've allowed God into your life to become a puppet. Are you ready to allow him to remove him from your life? You need to be set free from that. It's a true statement. They need to escape the snare or trap of the devil, and God is ready to set them free. For some of you, maybe there's one person in here that you need to be set free. I would love to pray with you and pray over you. In fact, we're going to have a prayer team at the end to give you that opportunity. Right now, wherever you are, worship team and and prayer team, you guys can come on up. I just want to close with this. A final application question for you guys. Which of these seven characteristics do you feel weakened and need God's enabling grace of favor to strengthen you? Are you weak in being a steward of all the things that God has given you, especially his word? Are you weak in being a soldier in fighting? Are you entangled with things of this world? Are you weak at being an athlete that you feel you have to cheat your way through? Are you weak at being a farmer? I mean, you have no more patience. You can't endure long-suffering that you need him to give you patience. Maybe a workman or a worker. Maybe you're not doing things up to code, ready for inspection by your bosses, your spouses, and definitely God. Are you weak in being that shiny vessel that God's called you to be? And lastly, are you weak at serving him? Serving in the community, serving at your workplace, your schools, for you youth especially, young adults at your colleges, hard ground, I get it, but God has called you to that hard ground to shine a light in the darkness, and there are many, there are less of us and many more of them. So I want you guys, if one of those things struck you, come on up to our prayer team. We have a big prayer team here tonight because I want you guys to do some business with the Lord. And I think all of us has one thing that needs to be worked on, at least. 
I've got three of these that I'm looking at. And I know I need it. Amen? Let me close us in prayer, and then the worship team is going to take us through. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, so much for your word, how it brings power and conviction, and it stirs us, and it drives us in a direction that sometimes we are not comfortable to go in. But God, by your grace and your favor, you will see us through. Help us to be good stewards. Help us to be good soldiers and athletes and farmers and workmen and vessels and servants for you because of the work you did on the cross for me, for us. God, you are so worthy to be praised, and sometimes we get it so wrong and backwards. And I pray, Lord, if the enemy has a grip on anybody's minds here tonight and they're willing to reject everything that you said here tonight or any of it, God, I pray that you would remove Satan and the unclean spirits that would have a blinders over their eyes, that you, God, right now, would send down a mighty army of angels and help on their behalf to fight in that spiritual realm. For we know we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, rulers of the darkness of this age. And I pray, God, against all of those principalities that you must leave because everybody in this room is covered by the blood of Jesus. You must leave now because you have no place here. Thank you, Lord, for responding and answering. And I ask for your favor of these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.